TED Audio Collective. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hi everyone, it's Mona here. Like I said, we're hard at work on the next season and I can't wait to share those episodes with you. But for now, here's an episode of another TED Audio Collective podcast that I think you'll enjoy. It's called Work Life. In the show, organisational psychologist Adam Grant goes inside the minds of truly unusual people to rethink the way we work, create and connect with each other. It is full of fascinating psychological insights to learn how we can create actual change in our lives. And I think you'll enjoy this episode in particular. If you like it, you can find and follow Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you're listening to this. Diving attracts perfectionists. This is Eric Best the longtime diving coach at Michigan State University. He's been the Big Ten Coach of the Year, and he's now coaching multiple Olympic medalists at Indiana. There was this uh, one guy that I coach. He wanted everything to be so perfect. There's this thing in diving called a balk. You start your motion to do the dive, and then you stop before you complete the dive. Well, he had a lot of problems with balking. I would spend hours and hours watching this guy waste a lot of his practice time. Yes, I am talking about Adam Grant. <laughs> Guilty as charged. I never thought about it as an expression of perfectionism. Oh, yeah. But you're right. You would do that on the most basic dive. I look at the Bach as a manifestation of everything is not perfect up to this point, so I can't do the perfect dive from here. And because I can't do the perfect dive from here, I'm going to restart. Well, guess what, folks? You can't restart diving, and you can't restart life. Diving exposed my perfectionism, but it also taught me to manage it. I learned that instead of aiming for perfection, it's healthier and more effective to strive for excellence. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist, I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people to help us rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, the psychology of perfectionism and how to overcome it. Thanks to ServiceNow for sponsoring this episode. Growing up, my mom told me that no matter what grade I got in school, as long as I did my best, she would be proud of me. And then she added, but if you didn't get an A, I'll know you didn't do your best. It made it clear that I shouldn't settle for anything less than perfect. Striving to do your best is a good thing. In many jobs, success depends on avoiding errors. You probably wouldn't want a surgeon or a pilot who didn't mind making mistakes. But there's a big difference between valuing excellence and being a perfectionist. Striving for excellence is pursuing high standards of quality. Perfectionism is very different. 
And I'm not talking about that time in a job interview when you said, my greatest weakness is that I am too much of a perfectionist. We're going to talk about this like a true perfectionist would, with precision. Perfectionism at root is a need and a requirement to be perfect because ultimately we feel that we're flawed, that we're defective, and that there's something imperfect about us that needs to be repaired. And it's that deficit thinking that really drives perfectionism. Thomas Curran is a psychologist at the London School of Economics and an expert on perfectionism. He and his team have synthesized decades of data on perfectionism to reveal some surprising insights. The way that perfectionism is built, it makes us very sensitive and vulnerable to those setbacks and failures which occur all the time because it's a threat to that idealized version of who we want to be and who we think we should be. Of course, that creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, and stops us taking risks, stops us pushing ourselves forward. And so they're very careful about what situations they do and don't place themselves in and, and what things they do and don't push themselves for. And as a consequence, they don't necessarily succeed in the long run. I was a diver. All right. My third year, I, I got an award from my team. It was the If Only Award. There was like a little cartoon drawing of me saying, if only I had pointed my left pinky toe, I would have gotten an eight and a half instead of an eight. And it was maddening. I would not leave the pool because I always felt like there was something I could have improved. And I kind of drove myself insane. Yeah. It's probably one of the few things in life where perfection does actually have a definition i.e. like this is the perfect 10 when you drive yourself mad trying to achieve something that really is just simply impossible. I never got a 10 because you have to be an Olympic caliber diver to get them and I wasn't. Mm. And I always felt like there was this unreachable standard of perfection and no matter how hard I worked and how much I improved, I'd never got anywhere near it. You see a lot of self-criticism, that's for sure. And that isn't unique to diving. After my lectures, you'd probably see me extremely anxious about saying the right thing or making the point in the most comprehensive and eloquent way. And then when I'm outside of the lecture hall, berating myself because I said something silly or I didn't say something right or I couldn't answer a question 100% perfectly. When I've done something well, there's not a great deal of happiness. It's more, thank goodness I didn't screw up. Are you saying you're a perfectionist? <laughs> A hundred percent, 110 percent, definitely. <laughs> Along with berating themselves, perfectionists waste a lot of time on details that don't really matter. If there was a pie chart of my life, the shaded part that says tinkering and perfecting would be by far the largest. When did you first realize you were a perfectionist? Working in academia, as you'll know, we're taught to value and almost celebrate the takedown, the criticism. You know, you're going to get smacked down a lot, unfortunately. And I went to Australia early in my career to do a postdoc. And that was a really competitive environment. And I just put too much pressure on myself. I thought that I was constantly failing. Uh, I saw other people around me who I thought were doing far better. And I felt I needed to overcompensate, work harder to keep up. And I got very exhausted, felt very burnt out. That was the point at which I knew that perfectionism was a problem in my life. Wow. You're the world expert on perfectionism. I would think in some ways like, that means you would be better at, at, at managing it than anyone else. So I'm better now. But th the first thing to say, it's really difficult because as well as being a personality trait, perfection is all around us. And so it's also a cultural phenomenon too. So it's really difficult to step off the treadmill when everyone else is running the same race. Oh, it's kind of the favorite flaw. It's something that we value in this kind of culture. 
you know, when you see perfection all around you and you think everybody else is perfect, then of course you're going to think perfection's desirable, obtainable. You have tracked changes in perfectionism over time. What did you find? I found that perceptions of self-perfection, I need to be perfect. Those are increasing over time among young people. The need for other people to be perfect is also increasing. And you can see it in surveys of college students done from 1989 to 2016. What I think is most important is the social element, the sense that other people expect me to be perfect. That's really increasing quite rapidly, almost a 10% increase. Uh, And that's the one that should really worry us the most because that's the element of perfectionism that's also highly correlated with problematic psychological outcomes, things like depression and anxiety. Do you think it's also rising among people who are adults? Absolutely. Unlike other personality characteristics, it doesn't seem to ameliorate or repair itself as people get older. If anything, it's quite the opposite. As we set higher goals for ourselves and fail to meet them, we push ourselves even harder in overcompensation. And what we've seen is that people actually get more angry, anxious and irritable as they get older. And these younger people are also going to be parents themselves. We know from the literature that perfectionistic parents raise perfectionistic children. Thanks, Mom. In his newest research, Tom has found that rising levels of parental pressure and criticism are major contributors to the increase in perfectionism among students. When you add it all together, these data suggest that not only will we see more perfections in young people, but that high perfection in young people is going to carry through with them as they age, as they move into the workforce and beyond. Wow, what's going on in the world that's causing that? I think there's several factors. And one of the things that often happens is we'll look at social media, parents or advertising, uh, the fact that parents are becoming more expectant of children, particularly in school and universities and education is getting more competitive. We'll take things in isolation as if they're kind of unconnected, interesting events. These are not unconnected events, though. They're all drawn together by a move and a shift in broader culture towards a market society, which has emphasis on things like competition, meritocracy, hard work. As the economy has shifted and as it's become much tougher to move up, young people are finding themselves moving backwards, whereas their parents could move up and did move up. But those pressures are still the same. There's a lot of pressure in social media, mostly driven by the profit motive, because obviously making people feel miserable about themselves is really profitable, because if you can punch holes in people's lives, they'll purchase things to try to fill them. That's classic advertising tactics. Um, So all of these things, undoubtedly contributing, can be linked back to what we value as a society and, and, and what our economy needs to thrive. It seems like in some ways, perfectionism is almost overdetermined. Any of these factors alone could be contributing, but we've got a bit of a perfect storm going here. That's exactly it. I just called it a perfect storm. (laughs) It's the best storm ever. It cannot be better. (laughs) It really can't. Like, if you look across the piste, uh, young people these days and everyone, they're bombarded with expectations that are in many cases quite impossible, really. And we take on this sense that we're never enough. I think that's the way the world just is structured, to make us feel uncertain, insecure, and, and to keep us working and to keep us consuming. There's been a discussion and some debate about whether there are multiple flavors of perfectionism. I think about the classic distinction between neurotic perfectionism and what was unfortunately called normal perfectionism. Do those distinctions stand up? Those distinctions don't stand up. A very uh, famous correctional psychologist said that perfectionism 
it's an inherently impossible goal. Something that is inherently impossible cannot be healthy. Personally, I've found perfectionistic strivings of saying, I want to make this as close to perfect as possible, more motivating and probably more constructive than perfectionistic concerns where I'm constantly worried that I'm going to fall short of perfect. I think you're saying that still both of those are probably not healthy. Nobody would ever argue, certainly not me, that we shouldn't be trying to be more conscientious, more diligent, more flexible, persevere more. But it's very different to perfectionism. That's why I'm trying to make the links here between what's going on in broader culture, because that's where it starts. All of the perfectionistic behaviour that we see are ultimately involved in trying to repair what we think is defective. Once we view perfectionism from this angle, it's really difficult to make a case that this is something that's in any way positive. You're reminding me of a meta-analysis that my colleague Donna Harari published showing that perfectionism predicted higher performance in school, but not in work. Mm. When things are going well, perfectionism kind of keeps us ticking over and it's not overly problematic. It can spur high performance under certain circumstances. It's something that could have performance benefit. Perfectionism could be useful on formulaic tasks. It might help you ace a math test. But at work, there's rarely one right answer. Now as you get older, as performance outcomes start to become more subjective and based on other factors rather than the grade and the metric, that's when things start to become difficult for perfectionists. That unknown is really scary because failure is so catastrophic for the sense of self and importantly for validation that they receive from other people. That's what holds them up in the world. It reinforces to them that actually they do matter when they think they don't. In diving at the state championships my senior year, I missed my best dive and fell short of a goal I'd been pursuing since I was a freshman. I felt like I'd wasted four years of training and let my team down. So what did I do? I went right back to practice and exhausted myself trying to fix that dive. Only now, no one was watching. And that's where the burnout comes from, you know. It's that cycle of self-defeat that perfectionists engage in. And they're constantly hyper-vigilant and wary about how other people are perceiving them and how they're performing. And that's a lot of mental energy expended just trying to uphold an image that you want other people to see. One of the reasons that perfectionists are vulnerable to burnout is because they overdo it and they never want to let go. But on the other hand, you're saying that they, even if they, they can avoid that instinct, they're still likely to undermine themselves through self-handicapping and saying, I don't want to know that I was not capable of doing this, so I might as well just not try that hard. And we see this a lot in our research. They hold off their effort after they failed the first time. They're just saving face. They're just, they're just basically saying, I can't fail at something. I didn't try. And so that's not to say that they don't put in loads of effort. It's just to say that they're quite strategic about where that effort is placed, and it's often very inefficient. It's placed in, in areas where there's very high chance of success and away from areas where there's a very high chance of failure. Sounds like it doesn't make sense, but when you actually break it down and think about it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. Practice can make perfect, but it doesn't make new. It's really hard as a perfectionist to, to have a creative insight or a fresh approach to solving a problem when you're just repeating the same habits over and over again, trying to stamp the variation out of them and eliminate all the errors. I think it's not to say perfectionists can't learn to be these things, but creativity is such a difficult thing to break through when you have high levels of perfectionism. 
This is why I threw out over 100,000 words of my first draft of my first book. Like, I spelled out the methods of every single study. I remember my agent telling me, your academic colleagues won't even read this. It's too boring. If you can just sit comfortably with this idea that actually there is no rule book, you can take risks and you can try and be creative, and it's not going to work every time, and you are going to delete more than you're going to use, but it does really help to break through a sort of mindset which teaches you that you have to be perfect at all times. Part of being a high achiever or a striver or a conscientious person is when you fail, you realize your technique is flawed and you try to improve the product or the task. Whereas a perfectionist, when they fail, they think it's themselves that's flawed. I need to fix myself. Every piece of feedback is an indictment on the self. Life is one big court of appeal for our flaws. And when life is a big court of appeal for our flaws, then we're going to see our flaws in all the information that's around us. It's the way we interpret the things that happen to us. Okay, if you're a doctor or you're a pilot, you cannot afford to be imperfect. Like, I kind of want to go to the surgeon um, or get on the airplane of a perfectionist, don't I? No. <laughs> there would be far too much worry, concern about what might happen in the worst case scenario for me to be comfortable with a perfectionist or a surgeon flying my plane or in charge of my surgery. Because of the anxiety that just invoked by that deficit thinking that I can't screw up, I can't possibly fail. These people are diligent, they are meticulous, and they're trained as such. That's why the process is so lengthy and so rigorous. But they're not perfectionists. So if you are a perfectionist, how do you break free from the rumination while still striving to do your best? I think it boils down to our relationship with failure. At the moment, failure is a great taboo. There are some very real pressures that we feel that create a sense that we must conceal our failure because whenever we push ourselves out there, society can often stamp us down. We need to slow down and we need to accept that we're going to fail and we're going to fail many, many times. You know, this kind of fail better movement. It doesn't matter that you failed. Sitting comfortably with failure in this culture is really not an easy thing to do. It's a really brave thing to do, actually. It's so crucial that individually we're able to break down some of those tendencies, but also culturally we're placed in environments where people are able to accept and embrace flaws. And if we can get that right, then these sorts of issues that we're seeing will fade away. And then you'll begin to see that you can still have high standards and you can still shoot for really high goals, but you can do so without the emotional baggage, the cognitive baggage that comes with uh, perfectionistic tendencies, perfectionistic thinking. So you can't allow failure to sit. You have to squash it with the iron fist of redemption. You have to kind of recycle it into growth. Sometimes growth is recognizing that it's time to move on from the domain that triggers your perfectionism. In diving, after I hit a wall in college, I quit. Later, I found that in teaching, research, and writing, I put less pressure on myself. There wasn't one perfect way to deliver a class, design an experiment, or tell a story. But short of quitting your pursuit altogether, there are important things you can do to counteract perfectionism. And there are steps workplaces can take to make it more acceptable to be less than perfect. More on that after the break. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. 
I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at ServiceNow. Both my parents were drug addicts, active heroin users, so I was born addicted to heroin. Um, spent some time in the ICU, and then, you know, we kept going from there. Around my third birthday, my mom was arrested, my dad was deported back to Mexico. Meet Juan Castillo. Growing up, he didn't expect much in the way of opportunity. So all of that kind of just led to thinking I was going to stay in my hometown and not really achieve much after, like, community college. But made the right friends, met the right people, and got motivated to finish college and get a career. One of those right people was Juan's first boss, Carrie. She opened an unexpected door for him. She told me, this job is not big enough for you. You know, this was a jump start to your career. So when you're ready, I'm ready for you to leave. And, you know, I'll support you in that. You know, in a workplace, we can't get so loyal to our employers or to our mentors or to our careers that we're become disloyal to ourselves. Not everyone is lucky enough to have support like that. And Juan is working to do something about it. Today, he works at ServiceNow. He's paying it forward by creating opportunities for underrepresented groups that have been traditionally overlooked in the tech industry. Currently, I am a program manager for the NextGen professional program. And I build equitable programs to get people into the technology industry. So we do things around presentation, how to present yourself, how to network, you know, how to build a resume, um, how do you communicate with someone, you know, what is a team project? Like I said, many of our participants are coming from part-time work, lack of employment, so these skills are not readily accessible to them. ServiceNow knows that most people already have the basic tech skills to get started. What they need is the benefit of a mentor like Juan had. Every person in our program has a lived life, and all of those things can be transferred to the corporate life. It's really more about what you've done more than what you know. We say as long as you can buy things online, you can check a social media site, check your banking on your mobile device, you're tech-savvy enough to be in our program. There's plenty of room for everyone at the table, so as long as you have the willingness to learn technology, we have the education for you. Research supports what Juan knows from experience, that one opportunity can be enough to change your trajectory. Every day, over 80% of Fortune 500 companies rely on ServiceNow for the digital solutions they need to work smarter, faster, and better. To learn more about ServiceNow's next-gen training program, visit servicenow.com slash nextgen. Welcome, everybody, to the congregation. This is the Church of Fail. This is Matt Matheson. Before he became a speaking and communications coach, he was a consultant at a social media agency. At least once a month, Matt would gather all their employees and welcome them to the Church of Fail, a special meeting where people volunteered to share their biggest work fails of the week. So I'm going to ask us to come up here one by one. There's three questions that you'll see in front of you. The first question, what did you fail at? Number two, how did you cope with it? And then number three, what did you learn from it? And then once you've finished, you're going to get a big round of applause and everybody else really, really celebrate what we're hearing here. Let's have um, a volunteer if anybody would like to go first. 
I was hired to DJ a very early morning gig. I didn't write it in a calendar or anything. I just thought I would remember because it was literally the next day. And I missed the gig. I showed up maybe an hour late. My first radio interview was 15 minutes long and it went really well. And then when it was over, I realized I hadn't pressed record. First of all, I felt horrible. I've never missed a gig before. And uh, what I did was I offered them a free gig for the next time they needed it in order to make up for the lost gig. I instantly panicked and I felt really, really dumb and I was so disappointed in myself. But I had to act quick, so I pressed record and I redid the interview by asking the guest to elaborate on the questions he had already answered. I needed multiple locations to write down and remember uh, what times my gigs were. I learned to quadruple check that I'm actually recording. I also learned that this was a very common mistake when you're first starting off, so I didn't feel so bad. It almost sounds like a more useful version of a confessional at work. Absolutely. Some people used to say they called it the failure confession session. It builds that empathic communication and we're in it together as well as being incredibly cathartic and adrenaline fueling in a good way when you're in the middle of it. It almost sounds like fun. Almost. Honestly, we've had points where we've come out of our cheeks, <laughs> you know, bright red from this, but also feeling really satisfied that there's this space where people can safely share these things that are nagging them. You have the very simple ones, like I busted the photocopier or I missed a train or I missed a client deadline. Remember a colleague saying that she took a risk with a dress that she wore to go to see a client because she'd sewed a button on and it went pop on the train. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you have some director level people from technology firms claim that they've neglected their family because of the amount of time they spent at their desk. You might not have a church of fail, or a synagogue of fail, or a mosque of fail, but your workplace can still take steps to help people face their imperfections. In medicine, for example, there are morbidity and mortality meetings that allow people to share their mistakes and identify areas for improvement. Confessing failures can help people learn to take them in stride. So one of the directors, I remember him sharing why the pitch had been lost, and then another opportunity was one, not long afterwards. And he says, I can directly attribute vocalizing that learning around why we lost that pitch for our services and what we got wrong to then bringing that into the what was then a winning pitch for a different client afterwards. What was it about vocalizing it that led to this growth or learning? It's that process of sharing something. There's a real visceral thing that happens in your body uh, a lot more than if you just shared it in a one-to-one -one with somebody. Like, you're going to remember that a lot more than if you just made a little note in your learning log. It's almost like giving people a tonic. Once you release something and you share it with other people, a lightness comes to it. You realize that maybe it's not quite such a catastrophic situation as you saw. And over time, doing that on a regular basis brings down that level of catastrophization, if you like, around mistakes and errors and these experiences that maybe feel more awkward to navigate than when the good times are rolling, as it were. Many leaders try to prevent errors by building cultures of perfectionism. Failure is an occasion for punishment. Mistakes are a cause for firings. But research reveals that this approach is counterproductive. 
It doesn't stop people from making mistakes. It leads them to hide their mistakes. You don't want to penalize imperfection. You want to normalize communication about errors so they can be detected, analyzed, corrected, and eventually prevented. You could start small, okay, and you can set the boundaries around the kind of fails. Okay, so let's just talk about day-to-day things or just what you feel comfortable sharing. Really, the most important thing here is that the person who is running this leads by example, and you just be clear that there are going to be no repercussions for what gets shared here. But, you know, there might be discussions afterwards. It's not a case of if you make a mistake and you share it in this forum, there are no consequences. So, for example, behavioral issues or breaches of contract, malicious intent, like this doesn't undo a disciplinary process or those kind of things. There's different levels here. When we share, when we normalize the language around these perceived mistakes, when we learn from each other, then that fosters a culture where people talk about this stuff. So yes, nobody's perfect and they shouldn't be expected to be perfect at work because we're not, we're just humans. It's helpful to be part of a culture that accepts and even celebrates human fallibility. But sometimes that isn't enough. You need strategies for dealing with perfectionism within yourself which is about normalizing your own mistakes and failures. Personally, I found it helpful to adopt anti-perfectionism. I aim to fail a few times a year. Yep, I have a fail quota. What else would you expect a recovering perfectionist to do? I want to get as good as humanly possible at failing. If I haven't had at least three projects flop at the end of the year, I know I've just been repeating what I'm already good at and staying in my comfort zone. Having an article rejected, a study bomb, and a speech fall flat is a sign that I'm pushing myself to try new things. It also cushions the blow. When I crash and burn, I can check it off as one of my expected fails for the year. You need that outlet, especially if you're used to measuring yourself against an impossible ideal. My teammates would say I was a total mental case. Meet Jordan Alesnovich. In college, she was a standout diver. I don't like to try new things. I don't like to start anything as a beginner because I do not like to be a beginner. I like to just always be good at it. I think I am definitely a perfectionist. How do you know? (laughs) Great question. For me, the biggest things are overthinking everything and then overthinking them again later that night or the next week. (laughs) I don't know if starting gymnastics at such a young age turned me into a perfectionist or if my perfectionist tendencies kind of helped me gravitate toward the sport of gymnastics and then the sport of diving. Halfway through college, Jordan ran into a big problem with her back one and a half. It was a dive that I had been doing for five years at this point. And it was just all of a sudden, I had this huge mental block. My brain couldn't figure out how to do it. Couldn't think of how I ever did it. So you're standing backward on the board. Yep. You're supposed to do a backflip and then a dive. Correct. What happens instead? I would just jump backwards off the board. Sometimes I would maybe do a somersault, but never ending in the dive part. So we had lots of days, lots of practices where I'm just still trying to do one dive. And then I would finally do it and that'd be the end of practice. Was there a point when you thought about quitting? Every day during that summer. You thought about quitting every day for a whole summer? Oh, yeah, because I couldn't dive. And 
my coaches and my team were relying on me to be able to do the things I was supposed to do. So I think it was just this terrible, vicious cycle of guilt and needing to do it and then beating myself up. So yeah, I, I wanted to quit a lot. I cried a lot of tears in that pool and out of the pool. Luckily, Jordan had an amazing coach who taught her to deal with it. The same coach who changed my life, Eric Best. A lot of things I developed my coaching were problems that I was trying to deal with to fix Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a great laboratory experiment for me. Thank you. We weren't the only perfectionists in the pool. Yes. Diving attracts perfectionists. You've got to keep them under control because perfectionists are the ones that are the most likely to burn themselves out. I remember the feeling very well. You're trying to make a dive better and you can't get yourself to make that change and you don't understand why you can't do it. And it just puts you down in a dark hole of despair. And then what happens is that you start doing everything else wrong and then you start believing that you can't do anything right. Eric taught us four key techniques for managing perfectionism. He anticipated much of what psychologists have discovered in the data. And those lessons have come in handy in my work life. They helped me avoid the mistakes I made in diving. First, recognize that excellence does not require perfection. Evidence shows that it's aiming high, not pursuing perfection, that gets results. When you set goals for yourself, what you need to make sure that you understand is exactly what do you need to do to achieve those goals. One of my divers, she said, I want to be the state champion. Okay, great. How many points do you think you have to score to win the state championship meet? And she said, oh, I don't know, probably about 450. The highest score was about 375, but it had gone as low as about 360. So now we know, on average, 370 has won the meet. And what it worked out to is that she had to score six and a half on her basic dives, and five and a halfs on her more complex optional dives. Instead of thinking, oh, I have to achieve this unobtainable goal, and she said, and I remembered about our conversation, <laughs> if I can just return to my averages, I'll be okay. I love this strategy of just clarifying the goal, which then makes you realize perfect is not the target. Right. And it's not even necessary. Even though it's said to be the perfect 10, in judging, we remind the judges over and over again that 10 is not perfect. 10 is the top of the scale, and it's described as very good in one scale of judging and excellent in the other. If you're in customer service, it's not realistic to shoot for 100% satisfaction. You might aim for 90%. If you're a teacher, you don't need all your students to ace the test. The goal is for them to reach a level of proficiency. And when I give a speech and the evaluations aren't perfect, I hear Eric's voice in my head. You just want to be steady. Just go in every day and do what you can do. Second, measure your excellence in terms of your progress toward the goal. In my diving days, when I came out of the water, I would look to see if Eric was excited about my dive. The clearest signal, he had his arms above his head in celebration. Jordan loved that too. Because he's seen all of your dives, so... If he's excited about it, it means that it was significantly better than others that you've done. Sometimes Eric would even say, best ever. It may not have been the best, but it was my best, which convinced me that I was doing well. If it's the best one that I've ever done, I've achieved my goal on that. 
Sure enough, psychologists find that one of the liabilities of perfectionism is being obsessed with maintaining your image. If you focus instead on working toward mastery, you can stay motivated to keep bettering your own best. When I publish a book, I don't look at how many books other authors have sold. I track whether my latest one outsold my prior ones. The person you're competing against is your past self, and the bar you're raising is for your future self. A perfectionist is always going to think that everything that they do is worse than what it is. You need to point out what was wrong and what you need to fix, but also don't forget to point out all the other things you did well. And the clearer you are about what your personal best looks like, the easier it is to improve on it. We had a new video system that I could put together like a best of from that day of practice in 15 minutes or less. A highlight reel. I love that idea. And this is something that every coach and every manager could do with their team, right? To say, let's sit down and make the weekly highlight reel. No matter what they had remembered, and they would always dwell on the bad thing, is that they walked out of there and they watched the highlight video and they could go, man, I'm good. I'm really good. And anytime we did a best ever dive, he would update our best ever file and resend it. I kind of always had an updated best ever compilation to be able to watch. So that was really helpful. What I think is so cool about that is I think it shifts, at least for me, it shifted my attention away from this impossible standard of perfect and toward comparing like my current mm-hmm. performance to my past performance. Yeah, making it a me against me type of thing rather than me against perfection. It's often difficult to judge your own performance. This brings us to a third technique for overcoming perfectionism. Find a group of judges you trust. In diving, I was able to rely on Eric for feedback. At work, I've set up a quality control committee. When I'm not sure if a project is good enough, I send it independently to a few trusted colleagues who share my standards. I treat them like diving judges. Their job is to rate my work on a scale from zero to 10. On an important project, I'm aiming for nines. If I get eights across the board, I know I can stop hating it. Then I ask each judge to tell me the one thing I can do better. That's the fourth technique. Don't focus on everything you did wrong. Research suggests that too much feedback can distract and demotivate you. Instead, identify just a few things you want to improve each day. Every time you do a dive, you get coaching on it, and your goal is to make it better. You know, usually with a perfectionist, You settle them down and you give them two or three things to specifically focus on in the dive. Even if it's not perfect, you give yourself a certain number of tries to make progress and then commit to moving on for that day. So he set a lot of parameters and limitations with the number of dives that he would let me do and, you know, the length of time to be at practice and that type of thing. Okay, that one's done. Let's move on. Let's go. Let's, okay, this is what you've got coming up. This is what I want you thinking about on that dive. He used to say, don't slam on the brakes for an accident that's five miles down the road. I think meaning like if something is a teeny bit wrong, don't change everything you're doing. If you're hosting a podcast, you concentrate on sounding more conversational and worry later about emotion and emphasis. If you're cooking, You focus on improving sauce consistency, not scrapping the whole recipe. Unless it tastes really awful. 
As a physician's assistant, Jordan has learned not to let imperfections bog her down. Working in orthopedic surgery may be where I do the best managing my perfectionism. I could follow the perfect treatment regimen, do all the things that the literature recommends to do for this type of patient, and sometimes it will work and sometimes it won't. And maybe perfect isn't the goal here either. Maybe it's getting functional or it's being able to do the activities that the patient wants to do. Perfect isn't attainable in my profession. And just realizing that makes me feel less frazzled and crazy. As a diver, I didn't make the Olympics, but I ended up getting better than anyone expected. You probably went the furthest with the least amount of talent of any diver I've ever coached. And yes, that's meant to be a compliment, not an insult. (laughs) I'll take it. Your struggles in diving taught you how to manage that perfectionist streak in you and also help make you a much, much better teacher. I think you're spot on. I'd been bad at lots of things before, but I never worked at them like I did diving. Right. Ultimately, success is less about how close you've come to perfection and more about the struggles you've managed to overcome. Although I was never satisfied with my diving, there's a version of me that could have been. I realized that the 14-year-old kid who could barely do a flip would have been blown away by the progress I made. And if my past self would have been amazed at how good I got, maybe that can be good enough for me now. Our regular Work Life episodes will be back starting in June. Until then, we're going to have some great conversations weekly, including with the amazing Ava DuVernay. So stay tuned for those. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by TED with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Constanza Gallardo, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Cheng, and Anna Fewen. This episode was produced by Joanne DeLuna. Our show is mixed by Ben Shano. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hans Dale Sue and Allison Leighton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. And a shout out to Alex Gonzalez for sharing his work fail. Special thanks to our sponsors. LinkedIn, Morgan Stanley, ServiceNow, and UKG. For their research, gratitude to Andrew Hill on perfectionism, Ivana Osank and colleagues on perfection versus excellence, Amy Edmondson and Dave Hoffman on normalizing communication about errors, and Chakfu Lam and colleagues on too much feedback. The way that you describe your self-criticism, is that perfectionism or are you just being British? <laughs> um, well, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> Probably both.